0: Ed Flash Ferrans,
1: an end of an era at the Service Employees International Union, race to the bottom, what some states are doing to stop a minimum wage mandate for federal contractors. Today on the show the latest from the Alliance for American Manufacturing and how Ronald Reagan shaped labor law in the United States. Welcome to the Friday, February 9th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. Scott Paul will be our first guest on the show today. He serves as president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. I just love saying that, American Manufacturing. That's what made America great. We just got to make sure we bring all those jobs back from Mexico, from Vietnam, from China. And you know what? Slowly but surely, they are coming back. AmericanManufacturing.org is their website. And I say that for very good reason, because last month, in the month of January, factories gained 23,000 jobs. That's right, 23,000 jobs, which was uh, more than all of last year. Scott's going to talk about it, but he's still concerned. The other uh, story is the U.S. trade deficit dropped in 2023. That is good news, but here's the problem. We used to get a lot of imports from, well, we're still getting a lot of imports from China, but China, (laughs) they're getting clever here. They know what's going on here in the United States politically. So what they're doing, they're shipping goods to Mexico. And then it's Mexico to the United States. We're, uh, we're going to talk about that with Scott. And lastly, the Alliance is celebrating the premiere of a new documentary film titled Relighting the Flame. This film is directed by an award-winning documentarian by the name of Carl Chris. And the movie, the movie tells a story of how a new generation of workers are defying enormous odds to rebuild and grow America's steel industry right in the industrial heartland and one of the guests is Dave McCall who is the current president of the United Steelworkers also the CEO of Cleveland Cliffs and of course Scott Paul we will run all the details this is going to a premiere in Cleveland Ohio in the next couple of weeks so uh that's gonna be cool to talk about americanmanufacturing.org is a website to go to later in the show i'm going to check in with uh, andrew strom andrew's been a union lawyer for more than 25 years now he is an associate general counsel at the service employees international union but he speaks on behalf of what he writes for the on labor blog which is a service of the harvard law school which andrew graduated from many years ago. And I'll tell you, you know, this is the month that we celebrate president's day. And I thought it would be appropriate to talk about what one president did to workers. And that president would be Ronald Reagan. Andrew writes, I will remind everyone how bad Donald Trump was for workers. And when I do that, it's worth noting how long the lingering effects of an anti-worker president can last. Ronald Reagan famously broke a strike by the professional air traffic controllers association, better known as PACO. That was in 1981 when he issued an order to fire the 11,000 striking federal employees. Now, many people view that decision as a symbolic turning point for the labor movement in the U S. And I totally agree with that because that was a game changer. And Andrew points out before Reagan became president, the five members of the national labor relations board tended to be career government lawyers. Well, guess what? Reagan broke that mold by stacking the board with individuals who had spent their entire careers representing management. And boy, I'll tell you, Presidents ever since have done the same thing, and what Reagan did over 40 years ago, we're still feeling the effects, and that's what uh, Andrew is going to talk about on the show. All right, now a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, $17 billion in assets under advisement, serving the needs of Taft-Hartley funds, corporations, public funds, endowments, foundations, as well as religious organizations. The president of the Service Employees International Union, Mary Kay Henry, announced yesterday she is stepping down. It's going to happen this coming May, thus ending a 14-year tenure, marked by advocacy for justice, for progress, and certainly workers' rights. This all signals the end of an era defined by Henry's near 14-year tenure a period marked by significant strides in workers' rights, inclusivity, and the intersectionality with unions and communities. As the first woman and the first LGBTQ person to lead SEIU, her leadership has been a powerful force in advocating for justice and progress. And her leadership has been transformative. Under her guidance, the union, which represents Almost 2 million workers in various occupations has championed significant federal investment in home-based care and child care. On top of that, her influence has resulted in higher wages for workers in those sectors. One of the most notable campaigns launched under her leadership was Fight for 15. The movement pushed for a $15 minimum wage, marking a significant shift in the broader discourse around wage equity. On top of that, five years ago in 2019, Mary Kay Henry introduced the unions for all campaign. The vision that she outlined elevated the concept of what's called sectoral organizing or sectoral bargaining where labor activism, instead of organizing employer by employer is focused on creating unions all across industries. In other words, if you're going to organize at a McDonald's, well, you better do it at a Wendy's as well and a Burger King and a Chipotle. This approach, which is very common in Europe, is starting to gain some traction in the U.S. with the creation of some statewide councils to set sectoral wide health, safety and or wage standards. So I'll tell you, she was a visionary. No doubt about that. She still is. She hasn't retired yet. But uh, we do salute Mary Kay Henry for what she has done. Check this out: a coalition of uh, Republican-led states has now petitioned the Ninth Circuit in San Francisco to invalidate the Biden administration's fifteen-dollar minimum wage mandate for federal contractors. I call this the race to the bottom. I mean, come on, fifteen bucks. The uh, three-judge panel heard arguments in one of three separate cases contesting the legality of the wage increase, which was instituted in January of 2022 through an executive order. The states argue that the wage requirement exceeds the president's authority under the Procurement Act and violates the Administrative Procedure Act and the Major Questions Doctrine. Boy, they really dug into this one, didn't they? The administration contends that the president does have broad discretion under the procurement act to implement policies, promoting economy and efficiency. By the way, federal courts have reached conflicting decisions on this issue, including the fifth and 10th circuits, the ninth circuit. Well, yet they have yet to issue a decision on this. Once again, it depends what side the judge is on in these courts. But it just amazes me that uh, that some governors and some leaders in various states have done just about anything that they can come up with to suppress workers' wages. Well, as you know, February is Black History Month, and we're doing everything possible on this show to uh, showcase various African-American leaders who have made a difference in our lives. And one of them is Chris Smalls. Chris is a leader shaping the direction of the labor movement today. He was born in New Jersey back in 1988 and he felt alienated from union establishments of the day with his mother, often forgetting she was part of a union herself. It wasn't until he started organizing his coworkers in Amazon that he saw how unions could be a vital vehicle for winning workers rights. That's what happens when you start growing up, right? Small started working at Amazon, optimistic about his path for development. However, over the years as an employee, he experienced grueling work expectations, saw institutionalized racism stop him and others from career growth. And the tipping point, well, that was Amazon's response to the pandemic when it was clear that his bosses prioritized profit over the lives of people and the workers. So in March of 2020, Chris Malls and his colleague, Derek Palmer, started leading actions for workers' rights. In April the following year, 2021, they began to call themselves the Amazon Labor Union, the ALU. Even at that time, most of the country thought that unionizing Amazon, well, it just ain't going to happen. It's impossible. Well, fast forward to April 1, 2022, the ALU proved doubters wrong. The workforce at the Amazon Staten Island warehouse, JFK8, voted to establish a union. Now, while this is just the beginning for Chris Smalls and the ALU, this success is part of a new wave of union activism, pulling modern organizing tactics into the long legacy of fighting for labor rights and you're seeing what's happening at Trader Joe's Starbucks it's all because of what Chris Smalls started he's quoted as saying we don't need millions of dollars we just need the people's power and the power of the community behind us hats off to Chris Smalls definitely a leader and one we salute for Black History Month all right quick break Scott Paul on behalf of the Alliance for American Manufacturing coming up. This is
0: America's Workforce.
2: It takes Layuna to build North America's infrastructure.
0: There is unity and strength for workers.
2: We are the USW. We are the
0: USW. The United Steelworkers. Steelworkers, The largest industrial union in North America.
1: We represent 850,000
0: members in In the the US, US, Canada, Canada, and the the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steelworkers. Standing strong. And fighting for what's right.
2: America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the
1: Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org.
3: A great union requires a reliable election system. Survey and Ballot Systems is a trusted election partner with more than 30 years of expertise in managing union elections. By partnering with SBS, your union can ensure it gets an auditable process and a high level of customer service. SBS is here to help you conduct your union vote securely, transparently, and with trust building always in mind.
1: Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org.
0: Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferrens.
1: And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X. Formerly known as Twitter, that would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by Blue Cross and Blue Shield's National Labor Office. Blue Cross and Blue Shield companies formed out of a need to provide affordable health care to teachers, loggers, and miners. Well, back in 1965, the Blues developed the National Labor Office to strengthen their commitment to organized labor. And today, today, Blue Cross and Blue Shield's National Labor Office remains focused on America's workers advocating for affordable and equitable health care, partnering with strategic alliances to provide industry-leading products and services, and proudly serving more than 18 million unionized workers, retirees, and their families. Yes, working hard for America's working families, for the health of America. You can learn more by following them at Blue Labor on LinkedIn and X, formerly known as Twitter. All right, let's go to uh, Washington right now and join Scott Paul. Love talking to this guy. He's so intelligent. And he's trying to get more jobs back in the United States. We saw this exodus over the last, my gosh, 40 years with these lousy trade deals. And slowly but surely, they're coming back. Scott Paul, welcome back to America's Workforce. And I was talking about the factory jobs. Well, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics came out with the numbers a week ago. And I always look right away to see how many factory jobs are coming back and Boy, we did pretty good last year. Scott, I'm going to let you pick it up from there, buddy. I, it's, it's, it's good news. I like to start off with good news, so go ahead.
4: Hey, that's right, Flash. We have something in common. That's the first thing I look at on the, when the BS, BLS numbers come out as well are the factory jobs. So, so we yeah, we had a good month in January, 23,000 manufacturing jobs added. Um, you know, last year it was a little soft in the manufacturing department. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, you know, one is that consumers throttled back a little bit on spending after the, you, you know, it, it, kind of like uh, after the pandemic, everybody was buying everything. Right. And so, mm-hmm. so that, that had an impact. The federal reserves interest rates had a bit of an impact, but, but we, we came roaring back here in, in, January, and I think that we're poised for good things um, as, as we look ahead because there's a lot of indicators, like the number of factories that are under construction, who have not yet hired workers, but who soon will, um, that gives me some optimism flash.
1: You know, we had a really good conversation. You probably know Jason Walsh from the Blue-Green Alliance. Oh, sure. Jason
4: and Blue Green are great.
1: Yeah. 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 He was on the show a couple of days ago, and we were talking about the connection between good policy and good jobs. And, And I know you've been watching that as well, because in the first couple of years of the Biden administration, we saw that good policy. We saw that with the Infrastructure and Jobs Act with uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, with the CHIPS Act, and, and, and the CHIPS Act has been very beneficial to the state of Ohio, especially the central part of the state. The building trades are going crazy over there, building uh, factories for Intel, for Google. So apparently, it, these numbers that you just referenced here, this, this, this 23,000, is that part of it pretty much then, in, in your opinion?
4: It, it, that's a really good question, and I some of it is right now, but more of it's going to come. And this is, you know, it, it takes just like when you're baking something or you're building something. You know, it, it it takes a little bit of time to 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 see the end result. So right now, flash, you're right. The the jobs that are being created with this boom. Created by all this public investment in infrastructure and clean energy manufacturing, you know uh, electric vehicle batteries, uh, solar panels, uh, semiconductor factories—they're uh, all being stood up. And so, those are the construction jobs, the building trades jobs. And then mm-hmm. they're also starting to train up workers as soon as those factories are done, because you can't—you you, can't—it's not like instant oatmeal. You can't create a factory overnight. It takes a little <laughs> bit of work, and so. Once, you know, once those are up and running and all the equipment's in it, then the manufacturing workers are going to be coming in. And there's going to be a lot of hiring uh, in Ohio uh, and in other places around the country, uh, which is obviously going to be very good news that we're having a hiring boom in manufacturing. And that's going to be on top of the fact that most manufacturers I know are looking for workers and uh... It, it's some of it is because a lot of their workers who are older kind of generation xers or very young baby boomers you know they're they're in their you know they're they're approaching retirement for manufacturing and so they're they're needing to replace them and you know some more orders are coming into because the you know we've seen some economic growth and so Uh, It's nice to see that. And so, you know, I know, you know, like the steel mills in Cleveland are hiring and, you know, there's a lot of other folks that are hiring right right now as well. And so this is a uh, this all this factory construction that was made possible by this public investment uh, in the early Biden years is going to start paying off this year. And we're going to see that on a trajectory from from now through the next uh, eight or nine years, as all of this gets stood up.
1: And you noted too, the, uh, the cost of borrowing money, and well, we can blame the Fed on that, and, and they're trying to balance yeah. out inflation. Uh, we, we, we know what, what the game plan was on that, and inflation has eased, there's no question about that. And at the last Fed meeting, well, they didn't lower anything, but the, it, it sounds like they're done, and they may even start dropping those rates now you've seen this over the years, Scott. When those rates go down, obviously that's probably going to have an effect on more factory jobs. Then, right?
4: Yeah, I mean, if you you know if you make it cheaper to borrow, um, you're you're going to get more capital investment, uh, which means you know more factory construction and upgrades and and more hiring. And the other I, the other factor here is that we obviously don't live and work in a vacuum, we're in a global economy, and sometimes the global economy can help pull us through, sometimes it it, 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 it does the opposite, and right now, and, and this is something, it's hard to appreciate because not everybody's thinking about how everybody else is doing every day, but you know, our economy is pretty much the envy of the world right now, that we've mm-hmm. hit that growth, We've got inflation under control. we've got good hiring and that's not what it looks like in China. that's not what it looks like in Germany. Uh, it, it's not what it looks like in a number of places. and so so we've been we've been basically doing this flash on our own, right you know and, and, and the global economy hasn't been helping us very much in this regard. and so my hope is that that will change uh, as well and we'll have that working in our favor.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, too, because uh, so many economists are saying, oh, my God, we're going to there's going to be a huge recession here. Well, it never happened. It never happened. And no. uh, and and now look at the stock market, too. I know there's Main Street and there's Wall Street, but my gosh, the stock market's on fire. So obviously there's a lot of people in power, powerful positions that like what's going on with this administration. Now, let's let's switch over to the uh, the trade deficit, the U S goods trade deficit. Now that dropped last year, I'd like to get uh, your take on what's going on here. That's certainly good news, but you mentioned China (laughs) and I saw this in your release. It seems like, well, China's figured out, okay, United States doesn't like this. So we're not going to deal directly with them with our goods. Maybe we'll just go through Mexico and let mexico go yeah. to the united states <laughs> they are so sneaky talk to me about this scott
4: yeah yeah well for the good news first is that the the trade deficit in like goods things we buy physical things we buy down 10 percent last year and so that that was good because we're not in a recession and that that but that means things are getting a little more balanced there's still a big deficit but it but it's coming down with China, directly, the trade deficit came down a lot. In fact, it's at the lowest level as a percentage of our GDP than it was when China entered the World Trade Organization more than 20 years ago. And, and we've seen all the devastation that it caused. Uh, but, and, and I'm glad you mentioned this, we've also seen that trade deficit pick up from some other countries like Mexico and India just to name two, and what we've seen also is that Chinese products, more of those are going to Mexico into India. So it seems like instead of the direct flight, they've been taking the, you know, the, the layover, uh, you know, approach in some of these other other countries, and some of that's to avoid tariffs uh, because there are you know substantial tariffs up to twenty five percent, or in some cases twenty seven point five percent on some Chinese products, uh, and some of that is diversifying supply chains because there. I think there is a lot of concern about the geopolitical risk of operating in in China. Um, and, and so some of that is actually what we would call near-shoring or friend-shoring. Some of it is that these Chinese companies, as you pointed out, Flash, have just figured this out and are standing up a finishing facility in Mexico or another country and then are, are bringing their goods in there. So we've got our eyes on that because, unfortunately, you know, goods coming from Mexico are basically duty-free because of the, mm-hmm. the U.S.-Mexico.-Canada trade agreement, which replaced NAFTA. And so we want to make sure that Chinese companies that aren't a party to any of this, they have no other obligations, uh, are not getting these benefits. And that's something we're hoping our, our policymakers are going to keep an eye on as, as we look ahead.
1: Scott Paul. President of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, joining us on our live line today. AmericanManufacturing.org is our website. When we come back, we're going to talk about an award-winning documentary that's going to be premiered in Cleveland. And Scott plays a role in it. We'll talk about that later in the show. We're going to check in with Andrew Strom. Andrew is going to take a look at what Ronald Reagan did to labor law over 40 years ago. And we're still feeling the effects. Back in a few minutes.
0: You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrens.
2: It takes Lanyuna to power North America with affordable energy. Dot org.
1: Attention, members of the Heat and Frost Insulators Union who are interested in traveling. Central Ohio has more construction projects on the books than anywhere in the U.S. Mega projects, large and medium-sized jobs are creating more work than our local 50 brothers and sisters can handle. Projects like Intel, the Honda LG Battery Plan, and multiple data centers for Facebook, Google, and Amazon offer union wages overtime exciting incentives local 50 is seeking union travelers to meet the needs of its signatory contractors who can put you to work immediately if you're a member in good standing and interested in the work opportunities in central ohio visit insulators 50.com forward slash awf travel for more information america's workforce is brought to you in part by the international brotherhood of teamsters where you can find more at teamster.org
0: there is unity and strength for workers.
1: We are the USW. We are the USW. The United,
0: United steelworkers. steelworkers, the largest industrial union in North America.
1: We represent
4: 850,000
1: members in, in the, the US, US Canada, Canada, and, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean.
0: We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper,
1: oil refining, atomic energy,
5: and the service sector.
1: We are steelworkers, standing strong. And fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at UAW.org. This
3: segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit Survey and Ballot to learn more.
1: America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Iron Workers. You can find more at IronWorkers.org.
0: Now, Back to Ed Flash Farrance with America's Workforce.
1: And don't forget, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency. Let's go back to our live line. And join Mr. Scott Paul, who is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, AmericanManufacturing.org. Do check out that website. A lot of good information. I know you want to talk about this uh, documentary coming up here in a couple of weeks. But I have to ask you, last time we talked, we were promoting the Made in America Holiday Gift Guide, which I know was like 10 years running. And uh, we did our best here to promote it on America's Workforce. I have to ask you how well did it go over for uh, for the holidays last year scott uh, you got any numbers on that yeah flash i'm glad you asked uh,
4: biggest year ever we had more people come to the guide than we'd ever had um we we had great take up um so much interest and it, uh, we got covered on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, which uh, you know made it, you know, it, it boosted things uh, e- even more. And we appreciate your efforts also to get the the word out because Cleveland was one of our strongest markets, quite honestly, uh, for uh, for folks that were paying attention to this. And so, uh, to me, it demonstrates both the the passion that our team puts into curating these uh, products from all 50 states, uh, but also the interest that folks have in finding a made in America gift for whatever reason, right? Whether it's sustainability or workers or patriotism or a thousand different possible reasons, but it is, uh, I'm excited about it. And we, we do uh, guides all year long. I mean, the, 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 the holiday gift guide's the biggest, but You know, sometimes we do back to school or spring cleaning or all of this. And so if folks just, you know, pay attention to our blog at AmericanManufacturing.org, there's always something on there that's going to be of some value. If you're looking to, A, both kind of solve a problem and, B, find products that will help to do that that are uh, made in the United States.
1: Well, that is good to hear. And I love hearing that Cleveland did really well as far as responding to that. Because I'll tell you, I hammered that, man, almost every day. I said, go to that website. Go to that website. Made in America. Made in America. Love it. All right, let's talk about this uh, new documentary coming up. And it's going to uh, be premiered in Cleveland in a couple of weeks. Relighting the Flame. Scott, what's this all about? Yeah.
4: Well, Flash, I know that's your home base. And so there's the steel mill that's very close to downtown and it had its ups and downs over the years. I don't have to tell you that. I mean, you saw them. Um, but, uh, but this, uh, is a, this is a look inside the lives of some workers in steel in, uh, Cleveland in Southwest Ohio in Northwest Indiana. Um, and and for a change, it is a story of hope uh, because this is about a new generation of workers and how they came into it and how they brought back hope. And so, you know, this was an industry, and I don't have to tell you this, that was you know teetering on the brink for a very long time, and it looks like it's found some stability. And for a lot of these folks, what made this just a life-changing opportunity was the fact that these are well-paying jobs because they're steelworker jobs. And so they they are transformational for, for so many people. And then just to be able to uh, lift up those stories. And by the way, our role in this was just underwriting and greenlighting the project. The, the director, Carl Krest. Who's based in Cleveland uh, is an, a very accomplished documentarian, um, and then the uh, you know the the subjects of the film uh, speak for themselves, and it's beautifully shot. And so there's stuff inside the steel mills uh, and inside the homes, and I, I just I can't wait uh, for it to be presented to the public.
1: The uh, date is Monday, February 26th. Doors will open at 4.30. The film begins at 5. And this will take place at the Capitol Theater. That's in the uh, Detroit West Shoreway District for our local listeners, which is located at 1390 West 65th Street in Cleveland. And uh, they're asking for, uh, well, I'm, uh, we'll get, we'll get some of this posted on our website. I think it's important to get a good crowd over there. So you, uh, so I guess you're making an an appearance in this along with the CEO of Cleveland Cliffs and my good friend, the president of the United Steelworkers, Dave McCall, who spent a lot of time, boy, I remember, you know, when I, I have to share this with you, when I started doing this show back in 1998, Dave was almost a regular guest for the very reason you're doing this movie. That's when you saw steel mill after steel mill, LTV, Bethlehem. J and L. I mean, they are all going bankrupt. It was a horrible time. And Scott, I I can share with you. There were so many people far to the right. I might have to say that said, you know what? It's a dead industry. Forget about it. We don't need it. (laughs) I'm like, what are you crazy? What is wrong with you? And obviously it sounds like this movie picks up on that. Am I, am I getting the, the impression right here?
4: Yeah, what what I like about this, and I'm going to – full disclosure, I'm going to be there. Dave McCall is going to be there. The CEO of Cleveland Cliffs is going to be there. The the film is entirely workers, which I like, and just, you know, a peek inside their lives. And, yes, some of them have lived through all of this and have seen the ups and downs. For some, it passed through generations, Flash, you know, and and, and to see that – and it talks about their emotions, about that period of time you were just talking about when there were so many bankruptcies in the industries and, and you know, mill shutdowns, uh, but then also kind of the hope and the revival and what's possible if someone believes in them and that possibility. And so uh, it's, a, it's a great story, and, and it, it's, it's centered in Cleveland, also in northwest Indiana which has a lot of steel production, and then uh, down in uh, southwest Ohio where th- there's a major works as well. And uh, I love it because it, it talks about how the industry is getting poised for uh, the challenges to come, uh, but more than anything else, just what it means on a personal level uh, to be able to work in a job like that. And, uh, you know, the, the, the security – that it provides to someone and, and to your point why we have to keep that industry healthy because uh, you know we depend on it for so many different things for the the metal going into our automobiles or into our national security and then the whole supply chain that is supported by the industry so i you know i'm i'm thrilled that carl made this film and we're happy to be a part of it we want to share it with as uh, many people as we can flash
1: And talk about an appropriate title, Relighting the Flame. I love that, Relighting the Flame. Well, if you'd be so kind, if you can forward uh, to us and our producers the contact information for Carl, Chris, and we'll get him on the show. And we'll promote, just like I did with the (laughs) Made in America, we'll promote the heck out of it here on America's Workforce. Because that's a story that needs to be told and told again and again and again. All right, Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. AmericanManufacturing.org is a website. You can follow them on X, formerly known as Twitter. I love this, too. Keep it made in the USA. Keep it made in the USA. All right, buddy, you take care, and we'll talk to you down the road. Okay, brother? You bet, Flash. Thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate it. Andrew Strom, labor lawyer for, my gosh, over two decades, is going to talk about Ronald Reagan's influence on labor. And it's not very good. That story coming up next.
0: This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com.
2: It takes Layuna to keep America running.
1: the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council, consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylights and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great ironworker, whether it's building the next intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Iron Workers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. Union members need to be
3: heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit SurveyAndBallotSystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections.
1: America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org.
2: America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd-Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at boydwatterson.com.
1: America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org.
0: Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferrans,
1: And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers, OH.AFT.org. Speaking of the AFT, we're going to have their Secretary Treasurer, Fred Ingram, on the show coming up on Monday. Right now, let's go to New York City, and welcome to the show. No stranger to America's workforce. We checked in with him about a year, year and a half ago, and I liked him so much, we're still talking with him. Andrew Strom, union lawyer for more than 25 years, and he is a contributor to the On Labor blog, which is a service of the Harvard Law School, which is a school that Andrew graduated from many many moons ago. And uh, this is the month we celebrate presidents presidents day is coming up let's see it's a going to be a week from monday and today we're going to talk about one president in particular and that president would be ronald reagan who shaped u.s labor law and we are still feeling the effects of what he did well over 40 years ago andrew strom welcome back to america's workforce i've had various discussions on this over the years here on the show And I really, really appreciate what you put together for the on labor blog because you really dug into what he did because the national labor relations board was much different before Reagan took over as president. So let's, let's start right there. Go ahead.
5: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I I think, you know, a lot of your listeners may be familiar with, to the extent people think about Reagan and unions, people think about the PACO strike. Um, which was a big deal. Uh, the air traffic controllers went out on strike, and uh, he ordered them to be fired. And, you know, there's been a lot of debate over the years since then about, um, you know, how significant was that as a turning point for unions in this country uh, as a symbol? You know, did that really, you know, did, did, the, did private sector employers really use that as a green light, or were they always, you know, m- my view is, you know, they didn't need that. They were, they were always ready to um, do You know, go to war with unions, but anyway. But the um, the issue that I wrote about is less talked about is how Reagan really changed the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board. Um, And prior to Reagan being president, there was a tendency to um, there's so. And the National Labor Relations Board has five members who are appointed by the president, and um, by tradition, three of them are from the president's party. Two of them. Are from the opposition party, um, but prior to Reagan being president, they were generally chosen uh, as they were sort of career um, public servants, people who had spent their careers sort of working their way up, you know, working in the regional offices of the National Labor Relations Board, uh, doing other jobs like that, where they were, um, you know, sort of seen as really you know neutrals. And Reagan really changed that mold. And instead, he stacked the board with these sort of anti-union zealots. Uh, Very sort of, you know, the the chairman was a guy named Donald Dodson, uh, who worked for, you know, some notorious anti-union companies. And it was really a sort of sea change for people. And the the decisions that they issued, I mean, this is what what I wrote about. Is you know, he was president from you know eighty one to the beginning of eighty nine. And, you know, it's so, it seems like ancient history to a lot of people, but the decisions that they issued, uh, some of them are still on the books today, uh, and still making it much harder for, for workers
1: to organize. Can can we get into some of that? What, what, what happened back then that we're still dealing with?
5: Sure. So, I mean, one of the ones that, you know, I spoke about is um, this decision called Rossmore house. So, um, you know, as I've, um, you know I want to talk about this before in the show you know I think the way the National Labor Relations Act works is it doesn't kind of lay out in detail the specific things that employers this you know that are illegal for employers to do right it just is written in this kind of broad language that it's illegal for an employer to you know interfere with restrain or coerce workers uh, in the exercise of their right to organize right and so that leaves a lot of you know detail for the National Labor Relations Board to fill in as well, what does that mean? And before that, uh, you know, one of the issues that comes up all the time is employers like to interrogate workers about, you know, wh- well, why do you, you know, wh- why are you for the union? Uh, are you really for the union? What's your view on the, you know, on the union? Um, you know, what are the issues that are making you, you know, support the union so that we can address those issues and, you know, sort of head, head off the organizing drive and. Essentially, there's no legitimate reason for employers to question workers about, you know, whether they support the union or why they support the union. Employers have sometimes tried to dress it up as, well, we have a free speech right. And as, you know, various board members have pointed out over the years, you have a free speech right to express your opinion. You don't have a free speech right to ask other people what their opinions are. That's that's not generally considered part of your free speech rights. And so before this Rossmore House case, generally the board had held that it was illegal for employers to question workers about their union sympathies unless the employer a had a legitimate reason which they almost never do. and B told the workers what the reason was, and C uh, reassured the worker that they were going there weren't going to be any reprisals, right So they could say, you know, we, I know we're investigating, you know, we're just trying to confirm that, uh, you know, your name is on this petition. Uh, you know, did you really sign that? I'm only asking because I just want to make sure it's not a forgery, but I, you know, we're going to respect your rights, you know, some right. some, you know, whole thing like that. And the board said, no, we're doing this totality of the circumstances test, right? A five-part test where we're going to look at all of these circumstances of you know, the background, what kinds of question you ask, you know, who the questioner is, where the questioning took place, Uh, and then, this is kind of funny, whether the answer was truthful or not, and if the worker lies to the supervisor, that's evidence that the questioning was coercive, Um, but, you know, which is kind of funny because, you know, uh, people don't necessarily realize that, but, um, and then you know, just to give an illustration of how crazy this is, it, you know, I, there, in 2019, um, the Court of Appeals, for the Second Circuit, which includes New York, uh, decided this case where a vice president of a company says to a worker, uh, what's going on with this union stuff? And the worker responded, I'm not going to talk w- about it with you, Mr. Clark. So your first clue that this is coercive is that the worker is calling, you know, the vice president, Mr. Clark. (laughs) You know, we don't usually, uh, you know, friendly conversations, you know, you're not usually calling somebody, Mr. Right. And so the, the LRB had said that that was a coercive interrogation. The, um, by the time it gets to the uh, court of appeals, six years have gone by. Right, And the Court of Appeals spends pages and pages and pages um, discussing this and going through these five factors. And the the NLRB had uh, discussed 20 different cases uh, where they said supported their decision. The Second Circuit went through all of them and said, no, no, those 20 cases are all a little bit different uh, than this case. And, you know, it's like if it wasn't so sad, it would be funny right? As a parody of how broken labor law is in this country, because even if the second circuit had come out, you know, in the end the second circuit said, no, it wasn't coercive. Um, but even if the second circuit had come out the other way, it was totally pointless at that by then because six years had gone by, right? You don't need to have a court tell you six years later, your employer acted illegally when it questioned you. That's, that's worthless. Uh, You know, what you need is you need, you know, the LRB or somebody to step in immediately and say, you know, you need a clear rule so that everybody understands going in, supervisors and managers can't ask workers what they think about the union, period, right? Because without that, you know, getting, finding out six years later whether the questioning was legal or not legal Having spent you know tens of thousands of dollars litigating this and by the way there's no remedy for this right the only remedy is uh, an order telling the employer not to do it again so it's really um, you know like I said if it wasn't sad it would be funny uh, as just an absurdist idea of how you know how to destroy uh, you know workers rights um, you know if you had a manual for how to do it yeah. Um, you know, it would be to issue these kinds of decisions.
1: So so what you've done here is a deep dive into the eight years of the Reagan administration, because, you know, the general public knows about firing the air traffic controllers. And that was big. That got all the media attention. And that sent a signal to CEOs that, hey, you can do just about what you want. But uh, there's one more here. We got a couple minutes left. And uh, we we're hearing this today about people that would wear a union insignia. Yeah. And I'm reading, I'm reading this, this case goes to 1986 Mesa Vista Hospital. Can you, uh, can you give us some details
5: on that real quick? Sure. So they just made this up. So, um, so there was this, this involves rights of workers in healthcare institutions. And the Supreme court had issued a decision 10 years earlier saying that employers in healthcare institutions could restrict solicitation and distribution, you know, of um, literature, you know, in the hallways of the hospitals and, uh, or in you know in actually in patient care areas, not even the hallways, in the in the immediate patient care areas. So like you can't in the operating room, like walk in and give your coworker, um, you know, a uh, a you know a union card. Um, so the so the NRB in this case just said, well, the same rule should apply to um, union insignia, and it was like with no analysis, no discussion, and that had never been you know the the board had always treated you know wearing union insignia differently than station distribution because it's a, it's a quiet event, right? Nobody's, it isn't, you know, you're not talking to anybody. You're not interfering with anybody's work. You know, you're not, um, you know, it's just a silent, um, you know, going about your business and, you know, to the idea that somehow now healthcare workers can't wear union insignia and, and, you know, this became kind of absurdist later when there was a case where, in a nursing home, workers tried to wear union scrubs with union insignia on them, and the LRB said, "Well, you can't do that because you can't take those on and off as you go into the patient care areas." And it's like, "Well, right, that's the whole point. Uh, you can't take them on and off." And so, what you're really saying to people is that you don't have the right anywhere because the idea that somehow workers are going to, you know, put on and take off, uh, you know, whether it's a button or uh, you know, a, uh, a lanyard or anything that's not going to happen. So this was a way of just kind of shutting down the wearing of union insignia throughout healthcare institutions.
1: Andrew, it's amazing to me, the, the efforts that, uh, people like on the NLRB that you're talking about here, what they have done to really, really screw over workers. It's it, don't you get the sense that they almost go out of their way to do this, you ever get that feeling? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I
5: think that some of the, you know, these people, I think went on the board Uh, In the Reagan years, with that in mind,
1: right? That they were
5: going to just, you know, go after workers' rights wherever they could.
1: And they did. And they did. So, those of you listening right now, here's what you need to do you need to go to onlabor.org, onlabor.org. And when you go to that page, just uh, type in Andrew's name, Andrew Strom, that's S T R O M, and you could see all the blogs. And this one is right there how Ronald Reagan shaped U.S. labor law for decades. It's important. We always talk about the importance of elections, and, you know, when you get the right people in office, good things happen. Well, just the opposite. If the wrong people are there, bad things happen, and this is a perfect example of that. Andrew, you take care. Stay safe, stay strong, and we'll talk to you next month. Okay, brother? Sounds good. Okay. All right, that'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce. Coming up on Monday, the American Federation of Teachers. That and more. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful weekend.
0: That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group.
2: Find out more information online at labortools.com.